You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. The football world is mourning right now, but also remembering the life and the ongoing legacy of Mike Leach. Gone at the age of 61, news that has just absolutely shaken the football world. And for good reason. Mike Leach, his roots are everywhere across this sport after being a head coach for 21 years and an assistant coach for longer beyond that, stretching back to the 1980s. It is Wednesday, December 14th. This is the College Football Daily a lot of people know Mike Leach. I think everybody's ever run into him has a Mike Leach story. I only got to talk to him twice myself. And one conversation was like 30 minutes long. And I was just thinking I was going to talk to him for 20 seconds. That's Mike Leach for you. But I'm not going to act like I know the guy. Bruce Feldman of The Athletic and Fox Sports knows the guy. He's written the book on Mike Leach, Swing Your Sword, who he worked with back, what was it, 2010, 2011, when you guys started working on that book? Or was that a little bit earlier than that? Yeah, we actually started working on it in 2009. And a lot of stuff came up in it, including yes, that's what it was. Uh, being forced out at Texas Tech. We did not see that coming. But yeah, it was a lot of time either in his office in Lubbock, in bars in Key West, uh, or a lot of time on the phone. You know, it was just a, he's a fascinating guy to get to know and to pick his brain and to be around and be in his orbit. So I felt very, in retrospect, I feel very blessed that I was able to get to know him the way I did. I know, I know a lot of us knew that he had battled pneumonia during the season, this, this past season, but the way this all happened, it was pretty shocking. Bruce, when did you first hear about it? Was it, was it Sunday, like Sunday morning, like most of us? And what was your initial reaction when you heard that things were getting pretty dire? Yeah, Brendan, I, I knew that he had been sick in early, mid-November, and then, you know, it was kind of rough. And then I thought he had recovered. That was my understanding. And then from what I understand, he took a really bad, surprisingly bad turn uh, late Saturday night. You know, I think like you and like most college football fans, we saw Mississippi State put out a release and then he went to the hospital. And I just think because of how I know Mike to be, I was like, you know what? He's a very cagey guy. He will battle through this. He may sound like he's on his deathbed, sometimes coughing and everything, but he will respond. Then I was out for a little bit with some stuff, family stuff on Sunday. And I talked to somebody who was pretty connected to what was going on and they painted a very dire picture. And my heart kind of sank and my, you know, my chest started beating fast and I've had like a pit in my stomach for like the last, I don't know, 36 hours or whatever. And one thing that kind of came back to me was Leach had a, has a, had a protege, Dave Nickel, who was at Mississippi State, was at Washington State, was a former Texas Tech walk-on receiver and salt of the earth guy. And and Dave, we were we were, got pretty close and he got on with Lincoln Riley here at USC and then he got really sick and it happened really fast. And Dave was only 45. And I just remember the thing with Dave was I was like, he's going to be fine because, you know, he's 
young and you just think, you know, foolishly that, you know, it will be. And the thing that kind of jolted me with Dave is, you know, I know people who are really close to Dave and closer to him than I was and, and everything. And one of them really filled me in. And when he said it, my heart just sank the where it was, you know, like, and then it was like a week later and Dave was gone. And with Mike, I, that's when I heard that Sunday night, I was like, oh my gosh. And I couldn't, I had tried to, t- I had texted him earlier in the day and not expected him to respond, but I just can't, you know, it's just, it's hard for me to fathom. I won't get to see Mike again or talk to Mike again, you know, because we had texted after Dave passed away and he sent me something that was very heartfelt. And I almost, it was like, not something I would expect from Mike, but it wasn't like, kind of like, it was, it was very thoughtful and you know, there was a line in there that said, you know, we got to hang out again. And, you know, I was like, okay, after the season, and I thought, and I know there's a lesson in there that we've all tried to learn and we don't remember and we don't follow through on and it stinks. And, you know, I, I hurt for his wife, Sharon, and, you know, his family and his kids and grandkids and, and a lot of the people who are close to him, you know, so it's just... You know, what really more to say? It just, it's hard because you go through these things like we're writers, right? And so it was very cathartic for me Tuesday morning to wake up. Like we had taped our podcast. I knew Mike had, you know, passed before it got out. And so we taped our podcast Monday night and kind of worked through some stuff a little bit, but it really, I wasn't able to sleep much Tuesday morning, you know, Monday night, Tuesday. And so I got up really, you know, three or four of my time and just started writing. And it felt like it was pretty cathartic to kind of work through some stuff, but just looking at the text message, just, you know, just really kind of gutted me. And so, you know, this has been a really, you know, it's been a really emotionally whirlwind right now. Yeah. There's something about, you know, seeing a message, whether it's a note or now text message, and it's just, it's hanging there in space now. And you know that there won't be more to it and you can't answer it. I think a lot of us have have dealt with that and, you know, it, it hurts. So his impact on just the sport overall, and for that matter, really just the way a lot of coaches go about even building their own programs goes beyond college football. It goes across the NFL, the air raids everywhere. I mean, and it's so funny. I mean, just growing up, I'm obviously, you know, not, not, not as, as old as you, you're so old, Bruce, but what I'm saying is, I feel it. (laughs) No, but what I'm saying is, you know, in the, in the mid late nineties, especially the late nineties with Hal Mummy at Kentucky and then at OU starting in 1999, I just remember just falling in love with this offense as a high school kid. And then everybody's saying it was so gimmicky and this isn't going to last. And of course their defense is bad because they don't practice defense, all kinds of weird things like that. And now to see it just proliferate throughout the college game and the NFL, at what point do you think it took, I guess, the general population to go, this isn't a gimmick anymore. This is what football can and, and should be, at least a mix of it. We need to implement this. It's a good question. So I remember when Mike got the job at Washington State and their first game, I think, was against BYU. I want to say it was a Thursday night game and BYU was better than them. Like Washington State had won nine games the previous four years combined and they got smashed pretty good. And I remember people were saying that everybody caught up to the air raid. They know what they do and it's gotten out. And I think, you know, Mike's air raid was different than certainly Dana's air raid or Lincoln's air raid 
you know, what Cliff did was a little different and they all had different wrinkles. Mike was like kind of the pure thing, but I think there were elements of it that were getting out, you know, whether it was the Patriots picking up certain things, you know, when Wes Welker went there or some other, other teams kind of gravitating towards what it became. You know, it's funny is uh, I'm trying to remember how this was. Maybe it was, I did a story for the athletic in the spring about how coaches hire their assistants and Sonny Dykes, who obviously was a, is a leech guy, and it was on that first staff. It was with him at Kentucky, but then, you know, first real full-time job was when Mike got the head coaching job at, at, at Tech, where his dad had been a great coach there. And Sonny talked about how we were so open. People were coming in, you know, Mike as his way, you know, you could talk about your 22nd turn 30 minute conversation that you had with him. That's Mike. Mike talked to everybody. So because of that, there was a lot of people who were not just dabbling in the air raid, they were living off it. And he was like, well, maybe we would have, you know, if we kept it a little more buttoned up, maybe we would have had a little more success because people, you know, found elements to it. And it's interesting just because I've gotten to know Dave Clawson at Wake Forest and did this, you know, story on coaching my kid in youth football and using his slow mesh and some of that stuff. And Dave was very candid with me. He was like, because of the wakey leak stuff, we didn't let people in. You know, we were, we used to, we're not doing that anymore because it didn't, you know, it's, it's not good for our program. And Mike let it, let everybody in. It's why, you know, this year I went and looked that of the Heisman Trophy 10 finalists, you know, obviously Caleb won it. He played for Lincoln Riley and, and you had Hendon Hooker playing for Josh Heupel who played for Leach. Even he's not a true traditional air raid guy. He came from that Leach philosophy at the very least. And then you had number two, you had Sonny with Max Duggan, but even down at number 10, there's Phil Longo at North Carolina with Drake May. People are like, well, that's not on his bio. No, but Phil Longo made these pilgrimages to Lubbock and Mike Leach let him in. And I think so more of those guys got out. It got into the Texas high school system. It got into seven on sevens that were springing up everywhere. And at the end of the day, you know, right or wrong, people want want offense, you know? And so when the Big, Tw- Big 12 was lighting it up, you know, I give credit to Bob Stoops. He he hired Mike the first time, you know, in whatever it was, 1999 when he took over at OU. And then he hired Lincoln when he needed to kind of restart his program and it worked. And so I think, you know, in that, I think it really took, an, it was like in stages, but I think when, you know, Lincoln got to OU, I think there was still skepticism of how well he'd run the ball, but credit to another leech guy, Bill Biedenboe, who's the run game coordinator. You know, they were crushing people with that counter game. And so they added, you know, different elements of it. And I think people were like, okay, you know, you could see how effective it is in the run game. And I think, I, I just think it kept on evolving and people, people kept on going, all right, this thing's here to stay. I think the beauty of it is just the simplicity of it. He didn't try to overcomplicate things. And uh, I believe in, in, even in the book, Swing Your Sword, he talked about how, you know, tweak it, change it, add things, but make sure you remove things as well. Don't just keep building to build on top of it. Make sure you're keeping it about the same size of the package. I think a lot of coaches could learn a lot from that because everybody just thinks bigger is better. And that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. And in fact, you know, I, I had, it didn't resonate with me. Like, you know, we wrote about it and talked about it, but you know, again, when I'm, when I'm coaching my, my second, at the time, second graders football team and we're adding plays and I tried to, you know, keep everything pretty simple. But as we go into the season, we're finding different things. And all of a sudden I just remembered, I showed one of the kids like our play cards and it was like a lot thicker. He was like, wow, we've added those plays. And I was like, you know, like all writers, we have a hard time self editing. And it's crazy because as you know, talk, Talking to Mike, Mike rambles and everything. Somehow, Mike knew enough to be 
disciplined enough to self-edit him in games where it mattered most because he didn't self-edit anything. I mean, in terms of like, you know, social media, I can only imagine the stuff he didn't share, you know, right. And so but a lot of the other things when it came to his game plan, if I'm adding two things, I'm taking two things out. And I think you were spot on to to highlight that because that was something where he was for the guy who didn't seem like he was always that disciplined was incredibly disciplined there. So myself, I didn't know him very well, but I always looked at him and I always wanted like, man, I want to see what he could do at a Tennessee when his name was coming up there. I want to see what he could do with all this money behind him at one of these big programs. But from the, the outside looking in, you know, outside the Texas Tech, you know, fiasco there that was going on with the administration and, you know, whether he was blackballed and that, that hurt his career. But my thought was, is that he never maybe really wanted that big job, whether it was consciously or subconsciously, because just based off of the things that he fell in love with, you know, everybody talks about the pirate stuff, but Geronimo and, and war games in a lot of ways. I think he liked being in these smaller atmospheres where he could be himself, do his own thing, and then grow from there. Why do you think he was like that? Why do you think he never, quote unquote, went to a bigger job or bigger space? You know, I think it's twofold. I do think when the Tennessee came up th- thing, that was Phil Fulmer yanking the rug out from under them. I don't, they did not, when I say they, I mean, him and him and Hal Mummy, you know, they went up, they, Phil Fulmer was rolling in t- Tennessee back in the late nineties. And there was not a lot of love between the air raid guys and Fulmer. And so I think they saw Fulmer when he yanked the rug out from John Curry and kind of st- snatched the stir- search. And then they jammed Jeremy Pruitt in there. And obviously that didn't go well for Tennessee, but that was probably the closest, you know, one of the closest times Mike came to getting that big job. But when, you know, if Mike had gotten it, that was still going to be a big rebuild. And I think a couple of things with Mike, you know, he has this outsider's personality, which just fits him. He likes kind of being more the Goliath, more of the guy who's taking shots at Goliath than being Goliath. I don't know, you know, at those jobs, and again, you know, if it's a Tennessee, it's a Georgia, it's a whatever, you LSU, one of those places, you know, there's a big recruiting machine that's got to be behind it. Mike was not the guy who was going to be, he was not Ed Ogeron when it came, or Mario Cristobal, when it came to like being all in on how we're going to recruit and his love for recruiting. You know, it was it was just that just wasn't how he was. And so Mike also was not a go golf with anybody guy. He didn't like golf. He hated it. So some of the guys who likes to schmooze, you know, Mike will BS with anybody. But I don't know if he's necessarily BSing with like, oh, go BS with the the richest guy in the state. He may go talk to the guy who's like working at the coffee shop who he sees every day or the guy who, you know, is the postman next door. Like, I just think he really liked people. And in some ways he was, it was like a, a kind of a more ideal fit for him to, to be at a place with less resources and just to show off how he could do it. I, but again, I do think he wanted to see what would happen if I had the best recruits. Cause he always was punching up. What do you think would have happened if he was at a, at a blue blood program? Say he was there, he got five years somewhere like that. What would have happened? It's a good question. I don't I don't know because I think with some of that there comes a certain level of entitlement with probably with some of the players and Mike wouldn't have tolerated you know, wouldn't have been yeah. a big fan of that. Even if you look at when he got some some bigger recruits, some of those guys did not end up thriving in his system. You know, he seemed to thrive with the guys who were you know, Minshew. Minshew was about, you know, you know the story. He was about to be like a GA. 
And he turned out to be, you know, magic in Pullman, right? And there was other guys who just were like, they had a little bit of, of the edge. When Mike got to Washington State, and I'm blanking on the receiver's name, but he was really productive. He was a bigger receiver, ended up briefly playing for the Bears, but they kind of clashed. That guy was like the one guy in the program that I think had, I don't know if he was necessarily a big recruit, but he had been kind of a bigger deal when Mike took over, you know? And and so I, I think, you know, even the guys like, he didn't have the greatest relationship with Kylan Hill, who was certainly a talented <laughs> player running back when he got to Mississippi State. For whatever reason, you know, some of those guys didn't flourish with Mike. And yet there were other guys, you know, who just like were guys that seemed to really respond to how he was. And, you know, it didn't mean that there were, it didn't mean that it was entirely like, oh, I don't want to coach these guys. I just think, you know, Mike was going to be how Mike was. And I think he was about as old school in that regard as you get. And certain guys really loved it. And certain guys are like, yeah, I'm good. I don't need to be, I don't need to be playing in this kind of system. Much more on the life and legacy of Mike Leach with the Athletics' Bruce Feldman after these messages. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. He's almost like the, the the guy who like, you know, who started up McDonald's and got that going, got fast food going and everybody fell in love with it. And then it got corporatized and someone came in, bought the idea, stole it. And now everybody's branched off and they're doing their own thing with it. But you still have, you still have the original up and running and there, there's usually nothing as good or as especially nostalgic or gets those feelings going like like the original I know you've had lots of conversations with him. Everybody's described him as quirky and all that. But how would you describe Mike Leach, the man, in his personal life? And what what are some moments that stick out with you and in your interactions with him? You know, he's the most curious person I've ever come across, right? I mean, he just like, I don't know what your next door neighbors do, but if Mike was ever around them at like a cookout, he would end up finding out. And then all of a sudden they would be talking for 30 minutes and he would find out about stuff about people, you know, that maybe you've never even thought of asking. And so in that regard, which is not a quality almost any successful coach has, in football because they don't have time to to think that way. Mike did. Some of the stuff that sticks out at me to me was being in Lubbock to work on the book. And there was a day we're at practice and there was a guy who just kind of looked, you know, kind of disheveled and but he was standing next to Mike as Mike was running them through practice and he was the offensive coordinator basically. And I said to one of the guys on staff, I was like, is that a big booster? And the guy he looked and he was like, 
No, I think that's that homeless guy who's been hanging around the building. Mike must have taken him out to practice. And he was there for like, you know, I don't know, 30 minutes, you know, so that that was that was Mike. And like, I have a feeling because I think I was saying this before, like, I'm just kind of working through a lot of stuff. And there's a lot of things like I haven't looked at Swing Your Sword in a good 10 years. And there's a lot of stuff in there that I know, because obviously I wrote, helped write the book, but there's a bunch of stuff in there that I haven't thought about in a long time. And I just like, I started to revisit a little bit um, last night. And I'm just like, man, like some of these nutty things that Mike came up with, you know, he was a, wasn't a great athlete at, in high school, but he coached this, this uh, youth baseball team and they were in some big, you know, regional tournament in the, in basically the Pacific Northwest or in the mountain region. And he was like, we didn't play our way in. We were just there because we were the host. We'd have no business there. And so he created this ghost infield where he stood up there like he was hitting infield to his players who were like 12 years old with an imaginary bat and ball. And he goes, these kids are diving all over the place. This is what we did. And it was like, everybody thought it was like kind of a joke, but we actually, the kids played really well and it gave him confidence. And he just had these really interesting ways to reach people. You know, his mind worked differently. And, you know, tweeted this out earlier this morning where Mike's advice to his filmmaking friend, Peter Berg, who's behind Friday Night Lights and all these other big projects about peewee football was like crossing routes. Little kids get fused, confused easily. And <laughs> I had talked to him about my own coaching experience. We, you know, that was kind of on the front of my mind. And, you know, the reality is it's not just little kids who get confused easily. Adults do too. And I think what Mike's genius was, is he found the simplicity in things where a lot of times we make it more complicated, right? And how many times have you been in a conversation with some football coach? And I'm not not disrespecting anyone, but where, you know, it's almost like they were taught, they were talking so far over your head that it's like, is that really probably the best way to get it across to your players or to get what you need to accomplish? And Mike was really, really good at seeing things in a way that maybe other people just aren't open to see it. Like they're staring at it, but they'd rather look at it like this as opposed to straight on and and just have the right perspective on it. Yeah, confidence is everything. And I, I recall reading something about him at, a, at a, an event when he was in Kentucky as an OC. And his opening statement was a lot about what he did in practice to instill confidence in the players because you're not going to have players that listen to you or learn if they're not confident and you got to give them that confidence. So how much time did, uh, did Mike spend in Key West and how much time did you get to spend with them there? Uh, quite a bit more than probably any coach would have been having, you know, like now, some of it was when he was out of coaching in between Texas Tech and the and the Washington State job. But he would be down there and I would stay usually at there was a hotel, you know, I don't want to say the other side of town, but and then I would either meet him for coffee and then we'd go out to eat and to drink and just I'd have the tape recorder running and I would end up with hours and hours of stuff to pour through. And the tricky thing with Mike is like I would, you know, transcribe pretty much everything and then have like, okay, these are five things I need to figure out. And I call him back and I might get one of the five things accomplished. But the other four things he would like, in my head, he would like jump the tracks and go down the same, same rabbit hole he did to me the night before where I'm like, oh, great. Now I've heard the same story and I'm not going to, I'm tied up for the next 40 minutes because I know how this goes. And so it was like, however you can get out of what you need to get out of with him. But it was a lot of time in Key West. I mean, there's certainly worse places to visit. So it was a, I don't know, it, you know, of the books I've worked on, it was definitely a different experience because Mike was in between 
you know, jobs. And at one point we had to buy back the book from the publisher. So the story of how the book got made was was very unique. And at one point I'm doing the math thinking we're basically self-publishing a book. If we don't sell X amount of books, I'm going to be losing a lot of money. It's like coming directly out of my pocket. And that's not something anybody wants to do. And it's like, if you figure if your book doesn't make money, you just like, you spent a lot of time and you didn't make money for it. In this case, it was like, you were going to have to front a lot of money and then you're like, ooh, I got to hit a certain threshold. And you know, fortunately, the book did really well. Is Mike Leach, in your t- time covering college sports, the most beloved coach among his colleagues? Yeah, he because he, he's different. You know, I was trying to think of like who's m- more popular. There was like there was something that was that was very endearing to him because he was different. Like at the end of the day, most of the coaches have a lot of similarities. You know, like. They may not be exactly alike, but like there's elements of this guy that reminds him of that guy. Nobody was like Mike. You know, I would say the two most different guys I've been around in coaching were guys I ended up doing books with. One was obviously Leach. The other one was Ed Ogeron. Now, Ed is a little like some some D-line guys, though. Like he's not like a lot of head coaches, but there are guys in coaching who have some element of Ed, whereas Mike... Perhaps there's like an insurance salesman who you may sit next to in like the Southwest flight or something, but like he was way different. So they were, you know, they were so different, but I think because Mike, he was endearing, he had stories. I don't know if anybody wanted to have the whole Mike Leach experience, but you know, the one thing they did really probably didn't get was Mike was not going to tell them a lot of great stuff about X and O's. You know, I'm sure they'd much rather have picked the brain of Cliff Kingsbury or Dana than Mike. So... Well, that's what made him so unique and will make him uh, so well-remembered. Bruce, any any final thoughts about Mike Leach's legacy? And I know I, I, I've seen this, this little groundswell as well on social media. I think he was like two or three games wins short of being quote-unquote eligible for the hall of fame which is ridiculous my math might be not might not be as good as others but i like yesterday and this has been a pet peeve of mine because of howard schnellenberger for a long long time yes yeah and and so and i've been pretty vocal about the hall of fame with howard schnellenberger's case and so you know when i knew mike was probably not going to make it i went and looked at his record and did the math i'm like wow he's at like 596 Mm-hmm. He is just under their threshold. And then I was like, what happens if I if you if you gave him one more win? Then he's at I think he's at de- at at complete even 60% across the board. And so I had tweeted something yesterday, which I don't think anybody got. I tweeted it at the NFF, which is the organization behind the College Football Hall of Fame. Like now today is the day to change this. And I like they sent something. It was a the exec, executive director of the Hall of Fame is a guy named Steve Hatchell. And I'm sure you probably met him at times as well. But like they sent out a statement from him and I sent something right back and it was like, you guys need to change this because Mike belongs in the Hall of Fame. And I hate saying what I'm about to say because it's like the same thing when you're trying to justify somebody else's Heisman candidacy over somebody else's and you don't want to like crap on the other kid or the other guy. But like Mike Leach is a lot more deserving of being in the Hall of Fame than some guys who won 63% of their games because they were at bigger schools, right? You know, his impact on the game is way bigger than most of the coaches who are in the Hall of Fame. 
I think they'd be morons if they do not rectify this because of Mike's situation alone. And look, even if they did, you know, like Mike wasn't going to get in the Hall of Fame tomorrow anyway, because, you know, they're just, you know, who's electing a 61 year old guy, but obviously posthumously now it's a different story. But I would just hope that the people there come to their senses, because otherwise, if Mike Leach is not in your college football Hall of Fame as a coach, don't even have your college, don't even put coaches in there then. Yeah, I, I agree. And also, I mean, Think of an excuse to put him in there for, for to, to bend your rules. He just change the criteria. I mean, yeah. like, you don't need like the jobs are different, right? There are certain coaches and there are guys, by the way, who are in there that didn't meet the criteria. So uh, there's a handful of guys who are under 60%. You grandfathered them in, right? You, you know, you can find a way to finesse the rules. Howard absolutely should be in because, you know, he started everything when Miami was about to go under for that reason alone. Never mind what he did at Louisville, he should have been right. in. But like, it's a thing that kind of ticks me off because there's a lot of stuff that is great about college football, but this stuff is really petty and stupid. We always try to define things by numbers to make sense of everything. And I don't know you need to be doing that in amateur sports, let alone with a, with a man like Mike Leach. So Bruce Feldman, the athletic author of Swing Your Sword, I, I would very much recommend you pick it up. I'm going to pick it up once again. I haven't read it since it was published and I was reading excerpts of it preparing for this and I've forgotten some things, even the introduction about uh, the dog that helped the dog, him. yeah. <laughs> and he peed on his face. Go check out that book and check out Bruce Feldman at The Athletic and also on Fox Sports. One of the the leaders is someone I well respect and uh, just simply the best. Bruce, thank you so much for joining us on the College Football Daily. My pleasure. Thank you, Brandon. For our producer, Lance Glenn. Again, I'm Brandon Marcello. This has been the College Football Daily. We'll see you down the road. This is Tony Kornheiser's show. I'm Tony. We expected someone else. So what exactly is the show about? Hmm, I don't know. It's a sports show nominally. Football's over, but we're finally at a point where things matter in college basketball. And baseball season is on deck. Greatest three words in the English language, pitchers and catchers. We have some of the best voices come on and explain what matters or what makes an upset, like Ryan does. (laughs) Nine over eight. No, that's not an upset. No, yeah, it is, Bob. And if you're lucky, I might just tell you about my search for discounted sleep pants or my worries about what my dog just ate. Listen on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.